Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Stephen Cameron. Thank you. Well, it's very nice to see you all here this morning, and I hope you have a, a wonderful day. Is this microphone working? Can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Shout if no. All right. So, talk's entitled RoboCup Football and Other Robots, uh, and it's basically talking about a series of competitions that have been running over the last 15 years or so um, to deal with initially robot football, but then some other things as well. I'll talk, we'll get into that as we go through. So, if you think about what robots are, at least to an oldie like me, um, robots for many, many years were devices like this, big industrial robots that would build things in factories. Um, the one on the left is a, a very early robot, very heavy, very uh, big, very slow, very cumbersome. Nowadays, you see lots and lots of robots in places like... Um, Car factories, in this case, welding cars together. Right? They've become an economical and useful tool within the workplace. Right? But they're not the sort of robot that you probably imagine right, from science fiction and the like. Right? We don't see humanoid robots running around. We, as my wife keeps telling me, we don't yet have a robot that can do the ironing for her. Right? What happened to all those robots that we thought we were going to be able to build some years ago. Why is it that we're still stuck with things like this rather than the exciting things? <laughs> but <laughs> the exciting things that you all want to play with and interact with. Okay. Sorry, it's just somebody coming in late. <laughs> so, robots back around. 15 years ago, in 1995, were, to be honest, pretty boring. They did useful stuff, right? but they did it in a boring way. Lots of robots in industry, but very few elsewhere. And why was that? Well, the biggest reason, actually, is that building a robot with real intelligence, any sort of intelligence, is a really hard problem to solve. Right? And we're still finding out how to do that today but we are getting a bit closer. That's the message for today's talk. So, back in 1994, 1995, a group of um, robotics researchers got together and said, well, these robots are all very boring. What we need is a grand challenge. And that's what RoboCup is. Right? Well, grand challenge, what that means is that it's basically... Um, a problem that's very hard to solve, but very easy to see what it is you're trying to do. And it should also be very inspirational. The idea of a grand challenge is that it's going to take many, many years to complete. Right? So it will keep people busy for a long time. But while they're doing it, they're getting things out that are exciting. Not just making an industrial robot go twice as fast, but producing things that look good. Right? and actually you know, are coming up with some useful results. So the grand challenge that the, that group of robotics researchers came up with back in the mid-90s was is very, very simply stated. Right? To finish building by the year 2050, so they gave themselves an awful long time, right? to finish building a team of robot football players 
that could go out and play the best human team in the world and win. So that's the grand challenge for robot soccer. Most of us still have no idea whether we're going to make this. Um, and actually, a lot of us don't really care that much because we're finding out lots of interesting things about how to design with robots, how to build robots, you know, and how to make them useful in the meantime. So even if we don't actually manage that particular goal, if you excuse the pun, then you know, we'll still be happy. The way that this got set up is that there are a couple of large international umbrella organizations. Um, one called FERA, the Federation of International Robot Soccer Associations, uh, and one called RoboCup. And it's a bit like having uh, Rugby Union and Rugby League, right? Two, two different organizations doing roughly the same sort of thing. In both cases, you've got a, um, a gang of blokes wandering around, picking up a ball and heading for the opposite goal. Right? It's the same sort of idea here. These two organizations both organize competitions all across the world, and both have a big world championship of their own every year, somewhere in the world. Um, and you know, and you know, most of the time, the, organ the people that work on both sides, either in Fear or RoboCup, talk to each other and do similar sorts of things. But what has happened is that the RoboCup organization has actually expanded out and now deals with things other than just robot soccer. Back in the, in the 90s, when they started trying to build robots then, you didn't start off by building something that looks like David Beckham and seeing whether you could get that to work. What you did instead is that you built with the hardware that you had available at the time. And the only sensible hardware you could use for doing something like robot football for the, last, uh, well, for the first 10 years of the challenge has really been robots with wheels. Right. So most of the work that's been done on robot soccer so far has been with wheeled robots. And some researchers have little wheeled robots, and some researchers have big wheeled robots, and some researchers have robots that are somewhere in between. Right? So what they do in these competitions is they, they organize the competitions into various leagues, right? classes for small robots, classes for big robots, classes for all sorts of different robots. And right now, for RoboCup Soccer, there must be about 15 different leagues running for all types of different robots. And what we also have are simulation leagues, leagues where you can play ro robot football without ha actually having any robots. You do everything in a virtual world inside the computer. And that's good because that allows us to start thinking about what you would do with robots that we haven't yet got around to building yet. And it also helps you to say, OK, what do we need to design into the next um, generation of robots right, in order to make the most of what we can now do, of that intelligence that we're trying to build into these things. So without further ado, let's see a little bit of video here. Is there any sound on this? It's plugged in. So what we've got here are some small robots, about that big, and we're looking from above 
and they're wandering around, you know, kicking a, a bright orange ball around. You may notice the robots have got little discs uh, or colored squares on the top. That's because what's happening in this situation is that there's actually an overhead video camera that's taking a picture all the time of what's going on on the pitch, um, and it can see where each of the individual robots are and where the ball is. So most of the intelligence here is being done off of the robots itself on a computer somewhere. And nowadays, we can easily run this sort of competition on a standard PC. Back in the early days, we needed, we needed um, uh, more substantial computers for the day, but a modern PC is powerful enough to be able to run all of this in one go. So the intelligence is off on the side, but that doesn't really spoil what we're trying to do, because we always knew that we would be able to get more and more computing power onto the robots. And nowadays, you could easily get the computing power you needed onto the robots, but you still have the problem then of getting the robots to work out what's around them, where the other players are, and where the ball is. And that's a problem we haven't got around to solving yet, not because we're being lazy, but because we, we sort of know that extrapolating how the technology is going, that we'll be able to do that in a few years' time. So we, haven't, you know, we can't do that on the robots right now, but we know how we could do it if we just did a bit more engineering, miniaturized things a little bit more. So that must have gone through at least once by now, wasn't it? So, you know, you can see a lot of stupid things going on with this sort of gameplay. you see that when they get confused and when they're not quite sure what's going on, they'll do things like just spin very, very rapidly in the hope that it will flick the ball off towards the goal. Right? And this is from about six years ago, this particular piece of video. Right? Now, the gameplay that you see <laughs> is just that little bit more intelligent. So eventually they get there, right? <laughs> so they've got a little bit better over the last few years, but this is, this is not far from the quality of play that we're now seeing. As you can see, that, that um, target of trying to beat the best human players in the world by 2050 has still got a little way to go. Right? <laughs> then what they started to do in all of this, is that a question there? Yeah. The, the, the ones for 2050 would be human size. <laughs> This is some early work now on legged robots. Back in the, right, so back in the very early days, we didn't have the ability to build robots with legs. And these are, again, from about six years ago, some of the early robots with legs that were built to try and play robot soccer. <laughs> and they're sort of clunking about the place. They're not going very fast. They're not doing very much. 
but at least they're not falling over. Right? And that's the hardest thing about legged locomotion, is to stop yourself falling over all the time. So it's got a little camera on this one. It can see where the ball is. Um, so it actually is trying to do all the processing on board. But very, very slow, very, very cumbersome. So say that's about six years old. And those have been built by robotics researchers um, from scratch. Right? They put everything together themselves. Right? So it's taken them a lot of time to put these together and to start getting these things going. As we'll see in a minute, right, you can now buy stuff from essentially toy shops right, that do far better than this. Right? And again, that's one of the things about RoboCup as a grand challenge project. The fact that researchers six or seven years ago were doing work with this sort of device now means we can go out and we can buy things that are better and cheaper. So what we also do, as I said before, is to simulate the robots. And that's partly because we can then simulate robots that we haven't got round to build, building yet. We can see whether or not the design of, that we've got for the robots is a good design or a bad design before we spend all the time trying to build them. Um, and it's also good for, for developing team tactics and the like at this level. We can run experiments with this sort of simulated robot far more rapidly than we can with a real robot. This, again, is about six, seven years old. It's quite slow, quite cumbersome, the way that particular one is going. So, around about the year 2000, I said there were these two organizations running robot soccer, originally. Then this, um, the, the RoboCup organization decided to branch out. Right? And they basically decided to start sponsoring, start organizing two more series of competitions. So they're shown by that sort of triangle figure on the top there. So we've got RoboCup Soccer still going on, still very much going on. And then off on the left by the uh, red ball there, we've got something called RoboCup Rescue. And the idea of, of RoboCup Rescue is to look at the situation where you're maybe trying to get a robot to go in to look for survivors after um, an earthquake or some other sort of disaster situation. I'll say a bit more about that later. And then the other thing they decided to do was to start sponsoring a, a series of competitions called RoboCup Junior. And that's aimed at you lot. Right? The idea of RoboCup Junior is to get young people involved and excited and interested in robotics. And so there's a whole series of competitions out there that are aimed exactly at you. So there's um, two, sorry, three sets of challenges among the RoboCup or underneath the RoboCup Junior umbrella. There's simplified versions of the football challenge. So the same robot soccer idea, but simplified down with the idea that school groups can actually come in together, you know, it's half a dozen people, say, working in a school, can come in and, and build a robot, probably out of kit parts, like Lego Mindstorms, but not necessarily, maybe 
uh, putting everything together themselves, that can then go off and play football on a small pitch um, in some of these international competitions or local competitions. There's also a simplified version of this RoboCup Rescue Challenge. I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. And then an another one that they added for interest was Robot Dance. And again, there are several different types of robot dance that go on. Um, in some of them, it's just the robot that dances. But in a lot of it, it's the people that build the robots dancing with the robots. So here are some of the, here are some of the robots that have been built right, by young people from across the world um, in order to do this robot dance where they're doing the dance, where it's the robots doing the dance. So you've got this um, Chinese uh, young lady over on the right here with her dragon robot. I don't know who owned the, uh, the sort of Japanese-type figure over on the left. I didn't see who that was when I was uh, going around taking these photographs. Um, and you've got flags of the world with some little wheeled robots up there. So again, bringing, it, bringing in things like kit robots or just uh, bending little bits of metal, putting the motors in, doing all the work yourself. Coming up with a choreography and then taking it to these competitions and meeting lots of other people there doing the same sort of thing, swapping ideas, right? getting excited about science is the idea. There's also something called the Senior Dance Competition. You can't, um, the sound's not working on here this morning, unfortunately. This is Amberfield from Suffolk, who won the World Championship um, Senior Dance. So you've got four girls there dancing away. The girl in the middle is a robot, which they had to design and build themselves. That's part of the rules. Right? You only get to dance with the robots that you design and build. Right? Uh, and they're actually dancing to the St. Trinian's um, theme on here. Right? Doing a very good job of it. Now, it doesn't have quite the same impact without the sound. But, but yeah, it's the robot with its hands up in the air now until the grand finale. Right? That's all done. So they went out to the World Championships um, a year ago um, near Shanghai in China. Right? Um, as I say, came back with the, with the World Cup for that particular league. So there are lots of things like that that are actually available out there. Um, they try and publicize it a little bit in this country. Um, I'll say a bit more about that in a second. So that was the RoboCup dance. People either building robots that dance or dancing with the robots after they built them. Um, the soccer situation, uh, we've got... Uh, so we've got a pointer here. You can see the little robots over on the left and in the center there. Again, I was taking these pictures myself last year. Um, slightly different size robots in the, in the same... in those two situations. The pitch, in this case, is basically the size of a tabletop. Right? So you don't need very much space available in order to be able to build your robots and play them against each other to make sure that they're working properly and that they can be used. And as you can probably gather from the costumes there, there are um, young people from all over the world. There are about 1,000 a thousand, a thousand young people your age at the World Championships that year when I went. Um, and it was probably the same this year as well. 
So there is an organization organizing this within the UK, um, locally organized. There's a URL if anybody's interested in trying to follow that up. They don't seem to, it looks as though their web page is in a little bit of a mess at present, but they've got some UK championships coming up in a few months' time. So the idea is that they have championships within the country around about March, and then the World RoboCup competition is in the early summer. It's going to be in June next year in Singapore. Right? So the people that do well in the local competitions, in the, in the UK competitions, are then invited to go forward right, and represent the country right, at the World Championships. So the lady that runs all of this, um, you know, she's a school teacher herself, or ex-school teacher herself. Um, she's very good at giving advice on setting up competitions, setting up local leagues, and things like that. So let's come back to the humanoid soccer situation. So, as I said, in the early days of RoboCup, right, Nobody could really understood how to build a robot with legs that wouldn't just fall over. And then in the early years of this century, people started to work out how to do it. And the idea is not just to build good robot football players at the end of all this, but the more serious aspect is that if you want to have robots that can actually interact with people away from places like factories, and get them into the home, and get them into nursing homes, and get them into hospitals. Right. Right. Maybe to try and do some of the boring jobs that are now being done by some people. Right. Then uh, you need robots that can actually interact around real homes. They've got to be able to deal with things like stairs. Okay? And the best way we know of doing that is to have robots with legs. And the Japanese are putting an awful lot of research money and time into this particular problem because they see this as a particular problem for them in the future. Um, they're looking at building companion robots right, that can interact with people in their homes, with old people, with sick people, and the like. So, Gee, do you want to get our toy out? <coughs> so it's now possible to buy off-the-shelf legged robots. Right? In other words, you can go down to, a, to a, a fairly normal looking shop and say, can I have that robot, please? Right. The way to make robots that don't fall over very quickly right, is to try and emulate a little bit of how, we, how we're put together, as it were. We've got lots and lots of muscles and bones and joints in our legs and our arms, and they all come together when we actually do something like walking or running. We've got to be able to uh, relate them all together. So, because balance is a very difficult thing. So, it's very hard to control something that's got all those motors in, right? a robot that's got all those motors in. And that's what we're still learning to do. Right? And my research student here, Jima, is actually doing some work in that area, trying to get robots to learn how to walk properly. Right? Pretty much from uh, first principles. So. So in a second, he's uh, going to show you his little toy. Maybe he's not quite there yet. <laughs> oh, no, here we go. So here's, the, here's our little robot. We, we didn't put this one together ourselves, right? We bought it 
um, you know, from a fairly normal looking shot. See, can we move this into the center a bit more, do you think? There's um, people back in the, in the sides can't really see it. So just, just bring it all over. So it's got lots of joints on this one. It's got 17 motors on it, this particular robot. Um, it costs about as much as a, as a decent plasma TV. Right? It's not that expensive now. got a battery pack underneath it, a little computer inside it, and hopefully any second now, it'll do something. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> I suppose, suppose we now need a voice box in it, right? <laughs> So I'll let it do his next trick. <laughs> so it walks, but it's not that fast, right? Again, we've got a long way to go before we're going to catch up with the David Beckhams of this world. <laughs> but it started to um, learn to kick. As I say, what we're actually doing here in Oxford is that we're trying to take devices like that and rather than get them to, to work out exactly how you get them to run fast or anything like that by working out lots of maths and lots of equations, we're trying to get them to learn how to do this properly. Right? But we're still start, we've still got a little way to go. <laughs> is it going to do any more? <laughs> That must be getting dangerous. <laughs> but again, we didn't have to build any of this. Right. Oh, I haven't seen this one before. What's it doing? <laughs> now, that's a new trick. I haven't seen that one before. <laughs> Any more? Or is that it? So this is this sort of device, slightly bigger versions, um, trying to play robot football. This is what happens if you try and get these things to play football. So they're okay when they're doing nice, simple little things like taking a little stroll across the table, but we've still got just a little bit further to go in order to get them to play football in any sensible manner. Having said that, that 
video was taken two years ago. Um, they've, they've definitely improved in the last couple of years. And again, that's one of the great things now. We don't have to go off and spend a year building a robot and then tweaking it. Right? We can go off and, build and buy stuff from the local shops right? and just focus on then getting it to work well. So the rate of progress with these legged robots right, is, really, um, is really improving. There's been a fair bit of work also done with these devices. Um, Four-legged robots, Sony Abos, which was a, a popular toy um, about 10 years ago, but Sony no longer sell them, unfortunately. Everybody likes the Abos, but they're really bad at playing football. Because no. <laughs> they can't really kick or anything. They sort of just shove. And what we're even seeing now at places like RoboCup is a robot fish. Right? Looking at other forms of locomotion, again, we're not expecting to do water polo or anything anytime soon. Right? But you can actually produce... Um, robots like this now that emulate different types of animals, right? And these might be useful, you know, for searching for people um, who are trapped in a submarine or something like that. Okay. I think if you go to the London Aquarium, they've got a whole tank of them floating about there. So all this stuff with robots... Sorry, it's like... Sorry? With the water one? I've no idea. <laughs> Question was, how do you score a goal when you've, when you've got a fish robot? I don't know the answer to that. So one great thing about going to these RoboCup events as well is just the number of people you meet there. You don't just meet the other competitors. So when we went, we were competing in some of the senior leagues, like the grown-up leagues, as it were, um, to say there were 1,000 school kids there, um, about another 1,000 university-level researchers, yeah. all having fun, all doing interesting stuff with these robots. Yeah. And you also have members of the public walking in as well. Right. And they had various odd-looking robots around the place. These are not you know, sensible robots from my point of view. Right. But again, p people were getting enthusiastic about what was going on and what's going to be going on. Right. Lots of things to see and do. So I said there was a third branch of the RoboCup um, Association work now, which is this RoboCup Rescue. And if you like, this is a sort of more serious goal for the whole project. Um, if you have a major disaster nowadays, like an earthquake uh, or a terrorist attack or something like that, one of the things that um, human rescuers have to nowadays do is to go in looking for survivors. Right? And typically, they don't really know where the survivors might be. And the only way of finding them is to go in and crawl in among all the rubble, all the broken glass, perhaps gas leaks and things like that, and try and find the survivors. So the, the idea behind the whole uh, RoboCup rescue thing is, well, can we build robots that could do that part of the job, could go in looking for survivors? 
Because if, if, the, if the ceiling collapses or if there's a gas explosion or something, you know, you've only lost a robot. Right? You, don't want to you don't want to lose the rescuers. We're nowhere near even conceiving of building robots that could go in and actually then affect a rescue, bring the survivors out. Right? But at least if you can do that first part, right, that is a, a particularly serious issue for things like earthquakes, right, where you've got collapsed buildings. Um, even closer to home, things like fires, fire and rescue services, would probably find this technology useful if we can get it to work. And we've still got some way to go on that. So the whole Robocop rescue um, activity is looking at that sort of thing. And that's another thing that we do here in Oxford. So, what part of the work that's going on is that various researchers across the world are trying to build robots that could get in among a whole lot of rubble um, to find survivors. So, this is a prototype of such a robot. It's got lots of little um, tooth belts on it, um, caterpillar tracks, lots of wheels. It's very, very complicated to drive one of these things. Right? It's got about 10 different controls on it just to drive it. You see, it's coming over the top there, and it's got a camera on it, and that camera's going to come over now uh, and try and peer down inside that box to see if there's anything there. So again, this is the sort of thing you'll see at the RoboCup events. They build bi um, big arenas like this, right? yeah. and they see how well the robots that are being built um, are able to get in and do things. Right? But it's quite complicated building robots like this. You need a lot of engineering expertise. You need a lot of cash to be able to go off and design and build and test these robots. You need big spaces in which to test them. So for the RoboCup rescue work, most of the work is going on with simulated robots. Just as for uh, RoboCup soccer, right, we're able to go off and do a lot of our development in simulation because we can, we can do a much faster development cycle that way. Um, the same is true of Robocup Rescue. This is just another video from uh, one of the Japanese groups. Again, we don't have any sound track on there. But if you can see, there's a robot at the bottom of that picture there. It's about to try and clamber its way up those stairs. And there we've got a mock victim, sort of waving its arms, uh, trying to attract attention. How is all this working? Well, there are people in the background with these robots telling them where to go. Right? We, don't, we, we don't have the ability yet to get these robots to go off and explore by themselves. Right? So the next stages are to try and get more and more of the intelligence onto the robot. That's not because we think we can actually put more intelligence into the robots than the humans have got around there. But if you really do have a disaster situation, right, there's a lot of noise, a lot of confusion. Um, relatively few people are going to be expert at driving these devices around. Right? So the easier we can make them to control and to drive, the better. Again, it's a robot just going over um, a very rough terrain in there. And there's the operator sort of trying to work out where the robot should go next. 
So what we're doing here right now in Oxford is to try and uh, get to the point where we can say, okay, this is what I can now see in the camera. Robot, you go over there, and then maybe the operator will go off and work, at, and work on some other robot um, in some other part of the disaster area. Uh, yeah, while the first robot is just working its way across all this debris. That's the sort of video feedback we're likely to see from there. It's probably enough of that one. But you can actually just see in the bottom left-hand corner there what the real robot's doing and what the operator sees. There's also been quite a lot of work on other types of robot. Those two robots were both based on caterpillar tracks to get over rough terrain because people have had a fair bit of experience with tanks and the like in using caterpillar tracks to clamber over different types of terrain. Other designs are being tested. In particular, if you've got something like an earthquake, right, then you tend to have quite small holes to get into in amongst all the, rub the rubble. And those robots back there were still quite big by comparison. Right? So they're after building things that can get into small gaps. Um, another big issue is power supply, trying to make sure that the robots are powered for long enough while they're doing all of this work. Luckily, the fact that we're all buying so many mobile phones nowadays means that battery technology is improving you know, at a great speed. We can get sort of double the battery capacity every couple of years now, which is good. So here's some examples of some other types of robots that are, uh, are being experimented with. This is from a Japanese lab. So this robot this is a four-legged robot. It's starting off now. Okay. Very cumbersome, but quite good for getting over lots of rubble and things like that, stepping over. But then maybe you get to a point where you want to go a little bit faster and the ground's improved. What do you do? Well, this robot turns on its side and it's got little wheels. <laughs> so it sort of does a skating motion. And then it can reverse that and go back to a stepping mode where, where maybe it has to go a little bit slower after that. I'm not sure where it's trying to go just there. But. So you don't have to be restricted to robots that look like cars or robots that look like people. Right? You can build them in other different ways um, to make sense of the situation. And now it's gone back to legged mode. And here's another example. This is a more snake-like configuration. You've got a long, thin robot. Um, it's got lots of wheels around the side. And the wheels are angled, right? So they're 45 degrees to the way the body's going when they're on the ground. Right? And by doing various twists of either the collars that have the wheels on or the wheels themselves, you can get quite a wide range of motions out of this. Great big cable on the back of this one because it takes a lot of power, 
and we don't yet have the battery technology that would allow us to uh, let this one roam around without needing to be recharged every few seconds. But it's, a, it's an interesting variation. So you, you were starting to design some really weird and wonderful robots now. Getting them to do things is not, diff is not easy. Right? Programming these robots right, is, is not an easy thing to do. Right? And if you like, this is the, um, the advertisement for the place I come from, the computing laboratory here just across the road. Right? If you're dealing with, with rescue scenarios in particular, right, you want to make sure that they don't suddenly stop working. There's basically two reasons why they might stop working. One is that they can't, they get stuck physically, or the power, they might run out of power. Right? But another reason why computer systems stop working is that they have bugs in them. Right? So we need to, we want to try and avoid them failing for whatever reason. And in the rescue scenario, there are two reasons for doing that. If the robot stopped, it's not doing its job, it's not finding those survivors. And also, if it is stopped in the middle of an earthquake zone, or, you know, in a, in a collapsed building, it just forms another obstacle for the rescuers to have to get past. So there are lots of good reasons why you don't want um, these things to stop working. And it is now possible, right, with modern computer science techniques for designing software, to build programs where we have a high reliability, we have high confidence in the reliability. So we think we can now start getting over that last point in particular. So the um, rescue robotics, as I say, it's relatively few groups that can actually have the engineering capability and the budget uh, and the space to build real robots for this. You can't go down to the local shop and buy a robot that's very suitable for rescue robots, at least not yet. Maybe in five years' time we'll, we will be able to. Um, most of the groups working on rescue robotics now are doing it in simulation. And they're essentially using a modified version of a game engine for doing that, so a computer game engine. So here's an example of that from a couple of years ago from some of the competitions. Um, this is what now the robot or the virtual robot sees. Right? They see something that looks like it's come out of a computer game because it has. Right? But you've actually got things like smoke and dust in the atmosphere behind it there. And all this is running on standard PCs. So the robot's being, being tracked along. Now, we've got a rather unusual disaster here. A train's gone through the side of a building. We've got some fire going on in the background. All this sort of thing we can now simulate using the sort of technology that has been developed right, for computer games. So there's a victim. Right? Um, and I think there are one or two others in the area as well. So groups like our group here in Oxford can work on developing the software for driving these robots, for spotting the victims automatically, right? for deciding where to look next. We can carry on developing the software using this sort of simulation right, while some of these other groups are actually going off and having a go at building the robots. Okay. Now, another thing you might want to do in particular 
in an outdoor situation like this. Not sure where it's going now. <laughs> um, another thing you might want to do in a situation like this, with, where you've got an outdoor scene, right, is to have a robot that can fly. And that's another area, hot topic of research now. And it's something else that we work on here in Oxford. And here's a robot that can fly. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try and fly it in here. I think it might, might be a little bit dangerous to do that. Um, it's a little bit, uh, it's, a, it's a helicopter, but probably not the sort of helicopter you've seen because this one's got four rotor blades on it. It's electrically powered. And what happens with these rotor blades is that two go clockwise and two go anti-clockwise. And when you do that, you don't need a tail rotor. Right? It's quite stable to fly. It's relatively easy to fly these things. Even I've flown this out there in the parks. Um, so we're still starting work with these, so this one doesn't do anything too intelligent yet, but we've got a little video camera on the, on the bottom of it there. So the idea is that this sort of thing can get up there in the sky in a rescue scenario, go off and look for victims. I'm still going around. Okay. The other use for this sort of, uh, of device, um, one issue you have if you've got a collapsed building or something like that is that radio communications are not always reliable. Right. And one way of dealing with that is to have something like this up in the sky, bouncing radio signals off of it, receiving signals from, from some robots and maybe passing, passing them to the control station. Just to prove, oh, it's on the next slide, right. So, so you can use these things, right, as eyes in the sky, as communication relays, um, and they're also more, more useful more generally for search and rescue uh, situations. In other words, right now, if, if there's a lost person, right, the police go up in their helicopter, which is all well and good, Right? They're very good at, at picking up, you know, detecting people. Right? But these things are a lot cheaper to run, if nothing else. They're not as intelligent, but a lot cheaper to run. So, again, the, you didn't used to see this sort of device just a few years ago. The reason why, why we've got these now is, again, coming down to the fact that we've got better batteries, so we can run these things. We've also got better motors, all those, again, largely down to mobile phones, right? Mobile phone manufacturers have spent a lot of time and money over the last 10 year, years building very small, very light motors, right? So that when you get a phone call, your phone vibrates. It's that same sort of technology, beefed up a little bit, that makes the motors on this go, right? And work fairly efficiently. So all this, all this exciting technology is coming together, right, to make things like that fly. Um, that one right now, it flies for about 15 minutes as it stands. Um, that probably isn't long enough for a search and rescue mission, but in five years' time, it will fly for an hour, and that probably is long enough. And you have to start thinking about all these things when you start um, designing these devices. So just to prove that these things can fly, here's one um, fl uh, flying 
uh, in a park somewhere. Um, it's being flown very, very close to the ground there. Right. And in a moment, it will go a bit higher just to prove that it can. They're actually very maneuverable. It's the guys that sell these that were actually um, driving those by remote control. They were selling them at a robotics conference that I went to a couple of months ago, um, and they had a booth in a hotel, right? And they were flying those in, they were flying those in the corridor in the hotel, right? So they are relatively safe, but they're very expert flyers, and I'm not, so I'm not going to try and fly that one today. So all this technology is now starting to come together. We've got nice new bits of, of hardware, motors, batteries, lightweight electronics, lightweight cameras, right, that we can now build small, compact, reliable robotic devices. We can buy, as researchers, it's great, because we can now go out and buy these things from fairly normal-looking shops. Right? We, we order these by mail order, but if we wanted to, we could go over to the places they were made, pick them up, and say, yes, we'll have half a dozen, give us a load of spares, and things like that. It makes our life a lot easier. And now the next stage in this process is to work out what to do with them, right? how, to, how to use them sensibly. As I say, that's one thing we're doing in Oxford. We're doing a lot of stuff on trying to get intelligence into devices like this, and into the legged robots, and into the wheeled robots. I have to say it's also a field that you lot can have a go at as well. Right? Again, if you get involved in things like RoboCup Junior or some of the other events that are based on this sort of technology, right, it's actually possible for you to go out and try things that maybe we haven't thought about yet. Right? Because it's, it's not much worse than getting a computer game installed on your computer. Right? You probably need a little bit of computing know-how to do it but it's becoming something that's, that's fairly easy to do. And with all this technology, you know, it's been a long time coming, seeing these robots actually becoming um, around the home, but it's starting to happen. Right? And in the next 10 years, right, it's really going to happen. We will see legged robots in use. We will see wheeled robots in use. We will see things like this up in the sky, right, helping to save people. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed the talk, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the morning.